This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to our Saturday AI Futures series. This 12-part series is about artificial intelligence governance, and this is episode 9. In this series, we've talked about near-term governance considerations for AI, and also long-term. What's it going to take at both a national and international level to sort of forge a future with this very powerful technology in the decades ahead that will hopefully be an aggregately good one and not one that instigates more economic disparity or war or other negative consequences that we'd like to avoid. And there are few people who've done more futures thinking and thinking about policy, the future of governments, the future of enterprises, and mapping those futures out than Jerome Glenn, who is the founder of the Millennium Project, who for a quarter of a century has been running the Millennium Project and essentially doing just that, um, working with governments, working with large organizations from you know the Red Cross to the government of Korea to sort of map out what the future looks like under different circumstances and to pull together varied stakeholders, often internationally, to think about how we can get along, uh, what kind of future we want to craft, and what's going to be a forged win-win scenario for that future, and maybe what we can do to prepare for it. Uh, we speak with Jerome this week about what that would look like for artificial general intelligence. Towards the latter part of this 12-part series, and we're on episode 9, so this is the back half for sure, we're going to be talking more and more about the long-term consequences of strong AI when this technology becomes very powerful. The big question in today's episode is, well, what does it mean to prepare for that? Who needs to be at the table in order to make sure that that's a peaceful transition? What kind of questions do we need to ask in order to ensure that we're sort of buffering against risks in so much as we can actually do that? And Jerome, with his experience in exactly this space, sort of breaks that down in depth. I'd love to get your thoughts on this episode and this series in general. You can go to emerj.com slash pod three. It's a two question survey. It's not even a survey. It's just a couple short fields. You can share your thoughts. I'd love to know if you want to see this as a separate podcast. If you like it on Saturdays, your ideas really matter. So please do share them there. Uh, we've gotten dozens of responses already, and it's really helping me to kind of craft what the next AI future series might look like, but I'd love to get your ideas as well. So without further ado, we're going to dive into this episode. This is Jerome Glenn with the Millennium Project here on this special AI futures series. So, Jerome, we've got a lot to talk about here in terms of artificial intelligence governance, artificial general intelligence. The reason I think this conversation will be fun is because uh, you've thought through some future scenarios with governments, with very large organizations for many years. You know, very high level, I know you've learned a lot and the process has evolved. What is the process for pulling together different stakeholders and imagining what will this future be and what should we do? I mean, very complicated. How do you go about it? Well, of course, one of the first things you do is you got to find out the state of the art of whatever it is. You know, if there's, let's say, five elements to it or 10 elements, then you got to know what's the state of the art on this element, on this element, this element, this element. Now, myself, I won't know enough to do that. So we have a global network of networks, 65 nodes around the world, which are networks themselves within countries. And so I can say, here's where we are so far. And they tell me what else it ought to be considered. So there's a, so it's a global sort of a state-of-the-art assessment. Finger on the so pulse. We, yeah. And then within that, uh, we take a look and say, what questions were not asked that ought to have been asked? And what questions were asked, but answered superficially? That gives us questions to ask in a Delphi study, which is a questionnaire that goes around the world. And the results of that then becomes guts content to create draft scenarios. 
And we send the draft scenarios back out and everybody has and criticized and so forth. And then we can say, okay, what do you do about this scenario? What do you do about it? You'll see good actions as well as scenarios. But that's sort of a generalized approach. Huh. So, you know, you talk about the Delphi study. I actually recall you bringing this up the first time you and I chatted. I don't remember if it was five years ago or something wild like that. Speak briefly about what a Delphi study is. So I like yeah. the idea of finger on the pulse. What are we missing? Yeah. You know, pulling those ideas together. And then there's this kind of dispersion to generate even more. What is a Delphi study? Delphi is a questionnaire whose second round is determined by the results of the first round. And third round is determined by the results of the second round. Uh, the reason for it was that there were generals and admirals and experts that don't always sit in the same room with each other at the Rand Corporation. And the Rand Corporation had to figure out how to beat World War III. Well, we didn't know a lot about that in the beginning. But you had all these brilliant people that don't always cooperate. And sometimes in the military, sometimes people are afraid to criticize an admiral if they're only a captain. Yeah. Right? So you avoid all this crap by saying, here's round one, send it out, and they respond to it, but without a name. So no one knows that you're a private or a president of the United States. Doesn't matter. And so the ideas become persuasive rather than personalities or yeah. rank. Yeah. Right? So then all those responses, but then also what happens is sometimes someone doesn't want to respond to somebody else's idea if they're in person. They say, I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. Right? All right. But then in the second round, those ideas from the first are in there. So you have to respond to all that second, first round stuff that you wouldn't normally have responded to. And the same thing goes on. So as a result, everything has a chance to be responded to without name, rank, or serial number. So the ideas become persuasive by itself. So it was a, a way to collect intelligence and have it learn through iterations. So it wasn't just saying, what's the state of the art of thinking? It's like you're going to improve that state of the art of thinking as itself. Yeah. Now, now that's the first first yeah, way of go going, on, going. Are, if I may. And that's brilliant. It's great. I still think it's one of the best there is. However, what happens if you're in a hurry? Like with COVID-9 stuff. You know, you want yeah. to get some like, working on that one now. And we're, we're going to do what we call real-time Delphi. That came up because of time. And you send out your questionnaire, but people have a sign-in so they can come back later, so you can vote early and often. So the idea is, let's say you responded to a bunch of stuff, and we ask people to explain their, so they say on a scale of one to 10, it's like five. So then when it comes up, explain yourself. So the people see why you said what you said without your name, without your rank, same way. And so then I can come back two days later or a day later, and I said, you know, and I see somebody misinterpreted what I said. So I can go back to my original text and edit it to make it clear. Although it's thought that this is it. However, in Singapore, they did an app that took care of contact agency this way. And there's the web link. Right. So then another person then comes in later, sees that. And says, yeah, but the Korean one's better. Watch this. this. No. And so you're, you're, you're getting the feedback stuff, but then you can say to somebody, this Delphi it goes live today at 12 noon, and we finish in one week. That's what's called real-time Delphi. Got it. And so the, the original approach here, you said, was developed by the Rand Corporation. Correct. Yep, okay. As a matter of fact, my partner in crime, Ted Gordon, who co-founded the Millennium Project, was part of that original team. Ah, okay. There we go. So there's some of the, the, the origin story here. 
So when it comes to congealing all of those thoughts, I mean, some of your past projects, I'm trying to think of, and, and you, you do a better job than I, Jerome, because you lived it, what's most analogous to this project you and I are talking about, which is around the requirements for global governance and what the means of global governance for artificial general intelligence. Obviously, you've never tackled that specifically, but you know, similar futurist-type projects, technology-type projects, power and government-type projects. I'm trying to think right. about once you've congealed all of those answers from different sorts of parties, we'll talk about who those parties are, then you've got to turn that into maybe more and less likely future scenarios to some degree. And that also feels like hard work. But, but go on about what happens after the Delphi. Yeah, we're not doing necessarily more and likely scenarios. The idea is to do plausible scenarios that are useful for thinking, right? So, for example, in part answer to your question about related stuff, we just finished a three-year study on the future of technology and work. And obviously, AI is a big part of that, big including time. general. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and including super at the end because it goes out to 2050. Eh, we might not get super at 2050, but... We might. That's a yeah. that's a, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And that's why you do alternative scenarios. Here's where you get it. Here's where you don't get it, et cetera, and so forth. So the way that we do this is we take all that content and some of it's positive and negative. Uh, so obviously the negative stuff gives me the stuff for a negative scenario. Positive stuff gives you, you know, and a mix. Now, a lot of futurists will argue against doing that. That's what the original way of doing it. Herman Kahn, also the Rand Corporation, also a former friend, unfortunately no longer alive. Uh, did the positive, negative, and middle, because that's the way we think. It's easy. Since then, a lot of futurists say, no, the trouble is then people start to plan for the middle one, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Legitimate point. However, that has evolved into something a bit superficial, which is people say, we'll take two or more uncertainties, like you get super AI, you don't get super AI, you get high unemployment, you don't get high unemployment. So that makes you a two-by-two grid. Right, then those are, becomes four scenarios. But then what they do that's superficial is then they'll describe that state of the future in 2050 or whatever. All right, that's fine. That's good. Then you say, what scenario, what, what strategy should I, should I have that works in all of those? All right, that's the normal sort of superficial scenario plan, which is better than doing nothing. So I don't want to argue against it because it's easy for people to do. Consultants work with it. People understand it. However, the real reason for doing scenarios originally was to, to write a story, a real story, not describing a state, like in a movie. This yeah, happens. yeah, yeah. A plot. It, it's a scenario, exactly. You have to have decisions with, with plausible stuff, not the, the truth, but plausible stuff. Why? Because as you write a scenario, you will get to a point, you say, I have no idea what happens next. This is crazy. I never thought about that. Oh, my God, we got to stop. And you stop. And then you do your research, you call your friends, you do all the, you know, all that sort of stuff to fill in. To what you don't know. So the, the value, the original value of a scenario was to force you into a position where you and your colleagues have insights into what you didn't even know to ask. A quick vignette. Rand Corporation, one of those ideas was what happens if there's no, this is years ago, what happens if no thermonuclear war doesn't occur in 30 years? But then all of a sudden a crisis comes up and you might have it. Right? Plausible. Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, yeah. Plausible. Right, okay. But the trouble with a 30-year gap is that you, you, you don't know who's in the Kremlin. Furthermore, international affairs have changed enough. You may be looking at Beijing, et cetera, right? So the, the whole idea of mutual assured destruction was you had to prove to your opponent you're crazy enough to press the button. 
how do you convince an unknown power structure in an unknown political, geopolitical you know, in the world that you're crazy enough to press the button? They didn't know. So you stop writing <laughs> and you do research and you think, all right? And they don't do that anymore in Israel. So you got to stop and say, I don't know. All right. Now, what they did was they came up with fallout shelters. The original reason for fallout shelters had nothing to do with people being thousands of years underneath the ground. What it had to do with is convincing your opponent that you're crazy enough to press the button. How? By having real fallout shelters. And then you say, everybody go. So that in this scenario, the scenario, the, the, your opponent sees news stories, video of mass crowds in New York City going up, mass crowds in Chicago, mass crowds in Los Angeles. The whole country is going to these fallout shelters. What does the opponent think? You guys are crazy. You're actually going to go to war. That was the purpose. But you couldn't say that purpose during the Cold War because it would make the whole idea invalid. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. why we never heard about this. But there's an example of where you got to figure out what you don't know. That's important. So when businesses say, I was blindsided, why? Because they didn't look there. They didn't look there. You know, they didn't go to the unknown questions. Got it. So the purpose of, you know, as you're, as you're saying, you collect all these ideas, we sort of map forward. You're saying the hard work to some degree is thinking through these plots and then stopping at like, to be honest, I have no idea with this combined right. with this, zero yeah. clue as to what's going to go down. I need right. to talk to folks that know those areas. Right. I need to speak to people from, right. from those geo regions, whatever the case may be. So, so this help us flesh out, you know, how wide is this suite of plausible scenarios? Because of course you could imagine it being infinite, but you don't want it to be right. infinite. You have to boil down the representative set that will be useful for thought um, and, and for, for policy, for, for future action. Um, how do you bound that reality within plausible scenarios that are uh, limited in number? Well, there's two approaches. One approach is the one I just mentioned first. What's your plausible negative? What's your plausible positive? And what's your mix? Uh, the other, of course, is, as I mentioned, you, you take your various unknowns that you really want to know, know about, and you make your matrix, and you can have you know a whole mess of different scenarios that way. And then you pick out of that mix, what do you think is the most interesting? What really brings up the unknown questions and so forth that we haven't asked before? Uh, so, And then you have yourself a little steering committee who nitpicks you to death, <laughs> and you come up with a consensus saying, okay, these are the ones we want to do, this is the approach we want to take. Now, in the process of writing them, oh, this is another good methodological point. In the process of writing them, if the story starts to develop outside of the original expectation, let it evolve. A method should not be a prison cell. A method should help you. So as you write, because I've heard people say, well, the story started to get outside of the box. Let it, because the, you're trying to find the dynamics of things, because a cause and effect link start to occur that you didn't think about before. So it should evolve beyond your original expectation. Then you're learning. Got it. You mentioned the steering committee on some level should be a open to that learning and b oh, yeah. and be responsible to saying okay you know these are the plausible scenarios we ought to discuss that we believe you know are, are most likely to to be worth considering. I want to sort of pivot this towards you know we're eventually going to be touching more and more on the governance of artificial general intelligence. You know I happen to believe that this is such a complicated you know scenario that it will imply some kind of a pooling of thought rather than hypothesizing in some academic tower um, or, or by some, some you know, individual brilliant scientist. When it comes to coming up with ideas 
about how the future will be. Sometimes those have to do with real power struggles, with uh, territory lines, with uh, policies of, of you know across borders and boundaries. Does this process? Are there instances of this process where we've talked about very contentious issues with you know competitors, more or less? And are there any unique insights from that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is one of the essential assumptions behind the Millennium Project is to do global futures research globally, not to have a PhD from Beijing and a PhD from Moscow at Harvard, who both got their PhDs from Stanford. You know, <laughs> that's not global research. <laughs> so we leave that like we have a node in in Beijing and a node in Tehran, as well as Tel Aviv and, you know, and in Silicon Valley, etc. So by having a mix of these people, uh, you you sort of address those questions now, but a question within your question, I assume going into the AI, on as we're preparing to work on the AI governance study, one of our co-partners will be the Chinese Academy of Social Science Institute of Soft Technology, soft technology, the legal stuff, all that what we're working on is the soft technology of AI, right? So this is like including China in the conversation from round one. Because if we're going to create these international agreements and treaties and governance systems, you got to have China and others in the yep, game. Yep. So we start from them to begin with. And, and so, yeah, clearly you'd need the stakeholders there, right, to, to presume that, oh, man, it's a very contentious issue. Let's just talk to one party. We'll figure out what they <laughs> think the other party will think, and then we'll right. bring it to the world, right? E even if you did draw up something great, you know, there'd be zero trust sort of baked into that process. So clearly, it sounds like giving people an equal footing kind of to get off the ground is one thing. It seems to me that to get folks to agree or to, to at least have some degree of, I guess, you know, maybe consensus is not exactly the right word, but uh, to sort of come to the same page on some topics, there would have to be a lot of that oscillating of these different plausible scenarios and say, which are the ones that are digestible for both of us? Ways, or what are the things we're looking for? What are the things that they're looking for? You know, right now, I think in the artificial intelligence race, the US and China is kind of the big consideration. Of course, I think we should be thinking about uh, the developing world. We should be thinking about the, the future of Europe. We should be thinking about other players. Organized crime too, because they've got the cash to buy the best software engineers in the world. And they got the institutional savvy to create a whole bunch of middlemen corporations so that you think you're working with the good guys and you're not. So we include that as well in our thinking. How do you pull those folks into the conversation, though, to be like, well, you know, we really need a representative from organized crime. Right. right. Well, nice thing about the Millennium Project, people sometimes just show up. <laughs> and you never quite know why, but that's okay. I figure if they, can, if they can find the back door, they're smart enough to walk in the living room. Anyway. One part of that is is the UN has the Drugs and Crime uh, Unit, and they look at all the organized crime stuff. Now, there's a guy involved in that who is now part of the UN stuff on AI applications. Yeah, Iraqli, Iraqli, yeah. Yeah, go. Well, I didn't yeah. want to mention names. Oh no, right, sure, they, sure that, no, that's fine. I think I don't think right. he's. I don't think he's that. He he probably won't be all that offended. Iraqli's proud. Yeah, but it all depends on what I'm about to say. Oh sure. <laughs> oh goodness. All right. Well, there's a chance I'll edit this out, but there's a chance I won't. So go go on, go on. Yeah. Well, the idea is that people who have uh, more uh, frontline encounters, we want to have in, and but this brings up a point of ethics also. You don't want to give your opponent. And I would say I organize crime as one of the opponents, so to speak. Ideas. And 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 our work, for better or for worse, always gives people ideas. Yep, I mean, we're yep. rich on ideas and stuff. So we don't want to make them smarter. 
but we would like to figure out social judo, and that's about as far as I'll go. <laughs> huh, okay, interesting. So there's 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 considerations there too around can we can we extract from I mean well, this is this sounds like international you know politics and intelligence in the first place yeah. where can we can we pull in everything that we want to pull in but not be permeable right. ourselves to have folks learn things and, and there's a parallel here this is complex so help me remember why I started on this it's the self interest of organized crime to take this seriously why because if we go to general we don't know how long it will take to get to super. If it goes to super without initial conditions being in good shape, we're toast. Now, there's a parallel to this during the Cold War. Carl Sagan went running around saying, if you have all these explosions, you get enough dust in the air, enough clouds in the air, that you knock off your vegetation. So I don't care whether Moscow or Washington has a first strike defense or a second strike defense. The guys are both toast. So you got to stop it because there's no winner, no matter what you do. No matter what you do, you lose. All right. So the same thing. We're saying no matter what the organized crime does, they're going to lose with the rest of us if we don't get the general AI right that moves in this super AI. Because super AI can mess around with organized crime just like they can mess around with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking forward, or I guess we'll close the gap more on, on AGI and, and on superintelligence. You know, I'm imagining going through this process with, you know, high up folks in China, high up folks in the United States, and, and it'll start at one level. I imagine there might be, you know, a, a Delphi cycle of sorts and plausible scenarios thought through, and then maybe it would go up to a higher level and, and hopefully there would be more powerful folks involved. It would seem as though it would be challenging to come to a same page conclusion about sort of where AGI should land, you know, whether it be in whose hands or representing what kinds of values, or it doesn't do this, but it can do this. You know, right. th these are impossible things, but, you know, we might as well take a swing because if, uh, you know, eminent right. destruction is the alternative, why not? What is the approach to wiggle around that? Because, you know, you can imagine that all these all these human rights things that, you know, Europe and the U.S. are going to tout may not exactly be, you know, privacy and whatnot may not exactly be China's right. cup of tea, no matter how you slice it, how you frame it. Right. How does a process like this help try to find middle ground if there is one? Well, there are two steps after the scenarios. You can have workshops, national workshops or industry workshops in different parts of the world. They can say, OK, what do we do about that stuff? So then they have a bunch of suggestions. We pull all those. I mean, we did this, by the way, for the future work and technology uh, study the same way. We got only hundreds and hundreds of suggestions from these workshops around the world. A lot of overlaps, of course, because many people think the same thing. But then we narrow it down to like about 90 or so or 100 specific actions and then divided those into different categories. What does government do? What does business do? What does education do? And so forth. All right. Then we sent those out as Delphi's, five separate Delphi's, and say, now, What's the good, the bad about this, the likelihood, the plausible, and then the comments. So then we give back to everybody. Here's the menu of actions. Here's the, the, the commentary on those actions. Here's what's been perceived to be the, the, the feasibility of these actions and the likelihood. So if you're in country X, you might pull out of that whole menu different actions that are relevant to you. You and another country might pull out different. So, so they don't have to have world agreement. What we have to have is a better conversation than we have right now. Now it's superficial and it's not serious long range. 
So this will move the conversation along, just like the work technology. That has moved the conversation quite along by now. Got it. So the idea would be to concretize, you know, not just like, well, we disagree about things. Well, I want power, you want power. But to say, all right, well, here's all the ways it could progress. Here's the international governance structures. Here's the local kinds of governance structures. Here's the modes of checks and balances. And here's what would be good or bad about these these different approaches. Here's what this party thinks about it, what this party thinks about it. And maybe that would concretize, okay, here are things where there seems to be almost ubiquitous agreement. That's great. Here seems to be the biggest fault lines. And then hypothetically, you could run another cycle about handling those fault lines. But at least now we know right. what's contentious, what's not, where we agree, and maybe can right. categorize the points where friction might exist so that we can work on them. It sounds like if nothing hmm. else, that would be the output. Oh, sure. Take a look at the the, the uh, climate change. The first Kyoto Protocol is a lot different than the Paris Agreement. Go on. I mean, just for the, for the folks who are, who are at home and aren't familiar with the, the core differences there, go on. Okay. The Kyoto Protocol, the original ideas about addressing climate change, it did not have much specificity at all. And, and, but, it, but it sort of like set out the norms. Right? And then as, as iterations of the meetings occurred and going into the other climate change conferences, it gets more precise, more precise, and more people play in. The original protocol, China did not say, you can inspect me for what I'm doing on carbon. In the later... They get, yes, you can expect me about what I'm doing. So it evolves. So we got to start. And uh, that's what futurists are usually good at. We're, we're good at starting these conversations. Uh, but ideally, this helps a process that ends up into international agreements, into uh, actual uh, negotiations, eventually a treaty, and then ratification. And then the treaty can be modified and updated. Yep. So like the process itself that we're we're talking about here. So in terms of... You know, I've got a number of questions before we wrap about this AGI topic specifically now that we've talked about um, process and hopefully the, for the folks tuned in, it's useful to to think through just how many ideas would have to be pooled together to actually have a conversation about something so complicated. You know, if you think about who would have to be involved for something as important as artificial general intelligence, obviously, you know, representatives from different countries, sure, but of course, there's deeper questions there. Do we need folks from defense, private sector, and academia? Do we need folks from different geo regions within these countries that represent different cultural nuances? Do we need folks of a certain level of rank in the military as opposed to just some guy who happens to be the one that reads enough fiction to be interested in this stuff? Um, right. n- not that I think it's it's uh, all that, you know, separated from reality, but for some folks it is. You know, deciding sort of who would need to be in the room is challenging. And it might not be that in a first round, we can pull in the ideal players whose opinions we really think would matter in starting to concretize the conversation. Who might we start with with something like AGI? You've already done some thinking on this. Remember, remember at the very beginning, you want to know the state of the art. Yep. On what are the norms, principles, values? What are the state of the art on thinking about standards, rules, and audits of AI? Uh, what are the status of the results from different international conferences? Because a lot of international conferences meetings have already occurred. There's a lot of stuff there. So within that body, as we go through that, you can pick out who knows the most in different areas. That's one part. Then we then also ask our nodes, 65 nodes around the world, who ought to be invited? So uh, most of the people who are invited are not centrally, if we didn't invite, you know, like I might invite you and some others, yeah, yeah. we might you know, do central. But then our Iran node picks who from Iran will be involved. I won't know. The Israeli node will pick who in Israel. I will not know who should it be. And so, so a lot of the picking is done by our, now our nodes are supposed to be a group of individuals and institutions that cut across institutional categories from government and business and academic and so forth. 
Uh, so that's our brain picking mechanism of the global local conversation. Got it. So the goal would be bottom up. Well, it's both. It's bottom up and then top down. It's both. Huh, okay. You're, 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 having, you're having the nodes doing the grassroots ball, but we're also doing the global assessment. Like as, I'll, as you pointed out, we'll go yeah, to the US. Yeah, okay, yep, yep. So it's, it's both. Okay, got it, got it, understood. So I imagine there may have been previous scenarios where, where you've cycled a number of times on a particular topic. You mentioned three years on the future of work. I'm not exactly sure how that went. I know you've you know done other sort of broader projects for governments, et cetera. I imagine sometimes in a first pass and distillation of these ideas, maybe you don't have someone high enough in the People's Liberation Army as you'd like, or someone as high up in DARPA as you might originally like, or someone as high up at uh, Microsoft or Google as maybe you think would be relevant for an, an AGI conversation. But if you build enough momentum, maybe the second time around, you can start to loop them in. You know, when it comes to the, the critical stakeholders who who we need enough buy-in to start to get this stuff teeth. You mentioned moving from Kyoto to the Paris Agreement. The nudges along that line in terms of the political cloud, in terms of the pull, you know, uh, business-wise and politically, et cetera, does it often happen in kind of concentric circles, so to speak? Or, or, or how do we work our way to influence? Well, a lot of the people that we uh, attract are thought leaders of a sense because they want to continue being thought leaders. So they want to find out, do we know something they don't know? <laughs> you know, it's like you're looking at the other student in school, like, what do they know? Yeah, you know? <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on, right? So as a result, we attract a lot of thought leaders. Now, thought leaders talk to other people we don't know. They can't keep their mouth shut. That's how they keep their reputation, by saying something that's unique, right? So a lot of this stuff gets rippled along. We integrate the players, as you point out, as much as we can. But a lot of these people don't necessarily like to fill out a questionnaire. Uh, footnote, what we've done in the past is we have our node chair interview such people. They won't fill out the questions themselves, but they'll answer it in yeah, an interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tea or a drink. Or, so we do that. So we're flexible on, on methodology. Yeah. But the thing is, it permeates out. I mean, um, and there's no, uh, we don't, we, we run from one study to the next. We don't always evaluate how it permeates out. But we see our phrases in different things from time to time. In the, yeah. <laughs> and you can tell because we pick a certain year or a certain consequence phraseology that others don't use. And you can, you can tell. Yeah, see who's grabbing your stuff. Because leaders like to know that they're the ones who know it all. They want to say, I want to do X. Yes. They don't want to say, Think Tank X told me to do this. No, they don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's interesting. There's a funny okay. analogy in the market research world and sort of our, our universe, you know, beginning the company was working with big retail banks and pharmaceutical companies, et cetera. And we were warned by early advisors who, who were pretty high up at Forrester that you want to steer clear in your early days of like the PWCs and the KPMGs and the, the big consultancies because their goal would be to take whatever your research methodology is and then they've already got all the enterprise relationships and then they'll just say, hey, we came up with this. You know, look at what we found. Look at how many companies we assessed. And so, yeah, similarly, there's there's sort of consequences in your world too. So it is with ideas, I guess, right? Easy to swap. I, I, I can see plenty of upsides there, but of course there's some downsides. Yeah. Back on AGI here, you know, clearly you and I are on the same page and this is why this interview is happening, that that much more ardent thought would need to be given to how this would shake out. But I'm interested in some of your instincts. Neither you nor I um, know the future, but but we have some instincts. Instincts on you know what it would take to cross the chasm where international bodies or nations, maybe let's say, 
um, would believe that human solidarity around this issue is, is central. I happen to be of the belief that at some point we will have to come to that conclusion if we don't want competing cyborgs and competing strong AI. I think that that's, that's really the state of nature in terms of plugging in stuff into the back of our skulls and in terms of building machines more powerful than ourselves. The state of nature, I think, wouldn't leave very much room for, uh, for happy little apes. But what kind of tensions, what kind of you know, precedents would have to exist for folks to get on the same page and say, hey, we have to come up with a way to handle this? What, what do you think it's going to take? Well, that's why we're, that's why we're preparing <laughs> to do the study. I mean, that, 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 that's, I mean, that's why. We're, 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 but to give us a side point to that might help the audience be a little more optimistic because there's reason to be quite pessimistic about this. There is. Is that... In the early days of the internet, I was involved in um, getting what's called packet switching. It's the device that makes the internet cheap. You put these little things all around the world, and it makes packages and switches to a satellite. So the satellite time is like almost nothing, even though you've been on the computer for all day long. You know, that's why it's cheap. Now, I was involved in the early 80s of getting that into different third world countries and often dictatorships, new business. <laughs> and as a result, I was aware of the conversation of GT, Telenet, and all these other early, early players. And we are all so happy and optimistic. We're going to get the knowledge of the world together. We're going to make it work. I mean, it was just great. It was like, it was cool. Like, I felt like I had a magic wand and I was running around the world, you know, turning on all these people. It's great. I did not think once, as far as I can remember, anything about the use of it for child pornography, for organized crime, in money laundering, and all that, all that sort of stuff, uh, cyber crimes. Information warfare, I was aware of, but all the rest of it, I wasn't. I would say, as a species, we were completely naive about it as we ran into it. Now, that's not the case. I mean, there are, I mean, I've tried to keep track of this stuff and I can't. There are so many conferences and meetings on, on in artificial intelligence. I can't, it's hard to keep track yeah. of so many things. So we are looking at the negative. So thank God for Hawking's. And Gates and the rest of the people yeah, who said, hey, and, yep. this, this, yeah, Bostrom, hey, this can go the wrong way. We did not have anybody that I can remember in the early days of the Internet. There may be some people saying it, but they were, certainly weren't allowed saying, hey, we got to rethink how we do this Internet. Yes, we want to do it, but we can't just let it go. Yeah, this is gonna be crazy. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody said that that I remember. So which means that this, in, in my view, that there is reason to be optimistic that we can get more collaboration on this one than we did on the other one. And secondly, there's more downside because going to, to, to super, as you pointed out. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of me thinks that uh, many, many years ago that there would have to be some kind of, and I hate to use the analogy, I don't have a better one. I probably should think through a better one before I start saying it on a podcast, but some sort of Pearl Harbor-esque scenario. Not that it has to be an attack yeah. by another country, but it has to be an event that, you know, I mean... I, as horrible as it is, you know, the common enemy idea that AI, the, the idea of intelligence in an, in an unbound sort of way or, or, or in a way that, that maybe we, we feel like is dangerous would have to be so evident as to be real, not as to be imagined. I think, you know, it, it wasn't even, we're talking about the coronavirus here. You know, what, what no. was it? It was, you know, no one's really sure about what the CCP is saying. No one's really sure, like, what's true, what's not, whatever. I think, you know, a lot of Americans might have some skepticism there, although, you know, certainly plenty of sympathy for, for the folks that were ill and for the doctors who really had a, a bad fall. But, you know, you started seeing it crawl across Europe, right? And you started seeing, like, the, the pictures coming in. with which, uh, The CCP is not going to show you all the carnage from, from a, a poorly handled sort of 
uh, you know, outbreak. But, you know, across Europe, we were seeing it. And I think for Americans, it was like, by golly, we've really got to think about this. Now, you could still say we acted slow, but the idea is like it has to be visceral. <sighs> Might it have to be visceral here? Might there have to be some some brain-computer interface, some AI scenario that spooks people so thoroughly across the globe that they realize we got to get on the damn same page. We cannot well, let this I, stuff develop. In the, in the three scenarios we did on the future of work technology out to 2050, we did have in there some of those. For example, the idea of weapon systems uh, developing uh, and, and, and almost developing its independence capability. I mean, weapon systems proliferate and act independent of human control. And we have that in the scenario. So, it would, by the way, in the counter to it, because governments sometimes are a little slow sometimes or self-defensive and defensive and all. So you end up with your independent hackers in the world, underground folks. <laughs> they create a new independent group that gets ahead of the thing and then and cooperates with governments, but maintains their independence from governments on the agreement that they wouldn't be arrested and so forth. So they have, you know, so there's intrigues on this sort of stuff. But yeah, though we have a couple of those sort of things of loss of control. And in the scenario, we ended up concluding in that, that particular that it was never fully under control. It was a constant thing that, yes, all bones, somebody hold, you know, part of it, a whole area gets wiped out. And it still happens. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there's some stuff in there. You got to read the scenarios, man. <laughs> you have to check out the future of work. It sounds like that's the closest precedent to, to strong AI, at least in terms of your recent yeah, work, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, in one of them, we had the, the very end part is that all of a sudden things started happening around the world. We couldn't figure out why and how it was happening. And we think of that, that super AI has begun. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll make sure that we link to whatever is publicly available on that work in the show notes somewhere so people can get an idea of what the output to these kinds of processes are. I know we're... We're at on time here. And download them. I mean, yep. 25 bucks is not a big deal. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Easy enough. Yeah. So uh, cool. Well, Jerome, I'm glad we were able to have you on. In this series, you are one of the rare folks who's brought on because you know you don't know. But unlike most people in those in that position, you actually have a process to figure it out. I think more of us should be considering it through that lens. And I very much appreciate your perspective on the series. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So that's all for this AI Futures series episode in the AI and Business Podcast. The next three Saturdays are our three final episodes in this series on AI governance. And we have three guests who are, in my opinion, some of the most important thinkers about strong AI and the considerations of governance and management and even safety of artificial intelligence that approaches or even surpasses human ability on multiple fronts. Those three guests are Steve Omohundro, who is our next interviewee next Saturday, Ben Gertzel, arguably one of the best-known artificial general intelligence thinkers in the world, uh, founder of a number of AI companies and organizations, and lastly, Hugo DeGaris, uh, one of the earliest thinkers in this space, who wrote a paper, I think two years after I was born, on 1989, about the future of artificial and general intelligence. And his thoughts have been really important in me crafting my own opinion about where these technologies are headed. So we've, we've had on some great folks. We had Stuart Russell from Berkeley. We had uh, folks in the Future of Humanity Institute, from the OECD, from the IEEE, so many great perspectives. And we're really going to start stretching that into what the heck does this mean for where we're going. 
And where do we ultimately even want to go as business leaders, as government leaders, as people thinking about the future of humanity and intelligence itself? So we've got some excitement in these next three episodes, and I'm excited to bring them to you. So be sure to stay tuned for next Saturday for more of that. And be sure to stay tuned for Tuesday when we dive right back into AI use cases here on the AI and Business podcast. So stay tuned, and I look forward to catching you in the week ahead.